Fingers of lightning tore holes in the black skies as an angry cloudburst drenched the surrealistic landscape. It was 3 a.m. on a cold, wet morning in late November 1967, and the little houses scattered along the dirt road winding through the hills of West Virginia were all dark. Some seemed unoccupied and in the final stages of decay. Others were unpainted, neglected, forlorn. The whole setting was like the opening scene of a grade B horror film from the 1930s. And so begins the topic of today's discussion, The Mothman Prophecies by John Keel. My moth people, welcome to Noctivagant, the show about the strange, paranormal, otherworldly, and the people who write books about it. My name is Nick, and I am joined today by my esteemed fellows, Rory Wixon J. Hello. On this show, we are going to discuss, rate, and review the best and worst in the world of paranormal and conspiracy literature. So settle in, buckle up, and prepare for a walk on the midnight roads of Noctivagant. In the annals of the paranormal, few authors can be said to have had the impact of John Keel, and among his books, The Mothman Prophecies is arguably the most important. Translated in over 13 languages with millions of copies sold over the last 40 years, The Mothman Prophecies has acted as a doorway into the world of high strangeness and paranormal investigation. Considered as the true Fortean classic, The Mothman Prophecies has no doubt inspired generations of weirdos like us to challenge the very nature of reality and never stop questioning. I was going to interject and say, like, I'm not a weirdo, but... You read the book, right? You're a weirdo. You're you're a weirdo. Okay, moving on. You were a weirdo long before before you read the book. That's why I married you. (laughs) Because I... Whatever. (laughs) Detailing a series of bizarre events in the sleepy town of Point Pleasant, West Virginia, the Mothman Prophecies wanders between truth and embellished truth with such grace and surety that the reader often forgets that, in Keel's own words, readers should, quote, not take it too seriously. Rather than simply listing the events as they happened, Keel plays with the truth, often drifting out of the hard firmaments of reality and into the entirely theoretical spinning out events that may have, could have happened, and placed them alongside events which outside sources have corroborated did happen, with not even the slightest hint to the reader about what is and what is not real. However, it is my opinion that he did not do so out of any malicious desire to pull one over the reader. Rather, Keel, unlike Charles Fort before him, seems to be of the belief that a good story breeds its own kind of truth, and by embellishing the events that did occur, he shines a light on the mystery that sits at the center of this book which is, what exactly is the paranormal? I mean, that is probably the center point of the book, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We're going to... Very little about actual moth people. No, no. I mean, I think what, like... Like, maybe... 20%? Yeah, well, we'll get there. I So, uh, to begin... 
what will no doubt be a stimulating and serious academic discussion. Yes. Uh, I want to begin with a high level summary of the Mothman prophecies, especially for our uh, viewers at home who may have not read the book or read it a long time ago. It's been out for quite a while. I'm mostly just concerned about our viewers. This is a podcast. Shut up. <laughs> Non-people are already watching us. Yeah. We've established that. It's because I keep <laughs> bullying them on Tumblr. It's, some days I feel like a non-people. <laughs> you're not a non-people, Nick. You're a Sasquatch. Now, while there's far too much weirdness and, weirdness and strange little stories in this book to go over every detail, at a glance, the contents of the Mothman prophecies can be broken down to three main buckets. One, the story of John Keel and Point Pleasant. Two, the secondhand encounters he documents between contactees in various instances of high strangeness. And three, his own personal theories. In practice, these three elements are present in almost every chapter of the book, intermingling and often jumping timelines, creating a somewhat chaotic tumble of ideas and events which, while lacking the usual A to B to plot conclusion we are used to, perhaps paint a more accurate account of what true high strangeness is like for those who experience it. He offers no catharsis, no great showdown with the winged beast. The strange events he describes occur, then depart, leaving nothing but questions, which Keel argues can never really be answered. The first three chapters of the book act as a sort of thesis statement for the meta-narrative that Keel is trying to establish in the Mothman prophecies. In chapter one, after his anecdote about wandering the rain-slicked back roads of rural West Virginia, Keel struggles to define what the line between truth and fiction are in the world of paranormal a question complicated by the fact that even the most well-intentioned eyewitness can misunderstand the mundane and make it fantastic. As outlined in the first chapter of his book, Keel goes over how he himself may have created his own little folklore when he, soggy and in need of a telephone, darkened one small family's doorway and left them with a story about the time the devil came to their door. He then goes on to imply that from this one encounter, the story will spread, changing and evolving with each telling until new folklore is born from seemingly nothing. One day, a man came to a door to use a phone. In 50 years, young paranormal investigators may just find themselves on those same roads hunting the devil. However, rather than argue that UFOs and other paranormal phenomenon are merely the byproduct of misunderstanding, he argues that the phenomenon, capital P, is an intelligent, imitative, mischievous force which alters its own appearance and behavior to suit the reality of the viewer, which we'll no doubt be screaming about later. He then relates this issue to UFOs, arguing that the current theory that they are extraterrestrial craft is based more out of modern bias than observable fact. Rather, he argues they are more akin to thought constructs, a symptom of the larger phenomenon that has plagued humanity since its inception. As he writes, they are not from outer space. There is no need for them to be. They have always been here. He then expands upon this idea and lays out what may be the closest thing to a thesis there is to find in the Mothman prophecies, which is, quote, Paranormal phenomenon is so widespread, so diversified, and so sporadic yet so persistent that separating and studying any single element is not only a waste of time, but also will automatically lead to the development of belief. Once you've established a belief, the phenomenon adjusts its manifestations to support the belief and thereby escalate it. If you believe in the devil, he will surely come striding down your road one rainy night and ask to use your phone. I mean, that's arguably not <clears throat> like that's not far off from any faith or religion or anything. Really. No, your, your, your view of reality is always going to be colored by your belief. Right. Uh, the problem is, is John Keel, I think, 
hated that people had belief. (laughs) I I feel like he hated that people had beliefs that were counter to what he was trying to say. See, here's the thing is that I think I think in John Keel's um, we'll get to this later. But (laughs) personally, I think that he's just mad because he thinks anytime you believe in anything, you're feeding the non people. And he is very clearly their enemy. Right. Anyway, um, John Keel is an angry man. And I'll explain more about that later. (laughs) In the next two chapters, he lays the groundwork for the strange events that visited the town of Point Pleasant, West Virginia in the summer of 1966 through 1967, or as he calls it, the year of the Garuda. Garuda being a large bird-like creature from Buddhist and Hindu lore, which he borrowed for this. Actually, the first uh, suggested title of the book was supposed to be The Year of the Garuda, but his publisher hated it. So It's not at all the Ohio native Sandhill Crane. You're an idiot. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So... (laughs) I remembered what that's referring to. God damn it. He first details a series of encounters between UFO contactees and the strange, creepy men who follow after them, often with the express goal of stopping contactees from talking about their experiences. These proto-men in black, Keel argues, are not men at all. They are constructs of the phenomenon, same as the UFOs they follow, part of the mechanism of control that keep humanity in the dark about the entity's true purpose and methods. He then expands upon this by going over the long history of giant birds, winged men, and bat-winged demons that have been spotted swooping through our skies for so long they have been relegated to the world of folklore. Here, Keen is cleverly laying the groundwork for his larger argument, meaning that UFOs, Mothmen, and the other more modern paranormal sightings are nothing more than the reheated leftovers from centuries past, a part of a reality that was willfully forgotten when we moved into the, quote, science fiction age. To understand Keel, it's best to think of all paranormal phenomenon as an expression of a single power or source, which assumes the form our understanding of reality can accept. In ancient times, lights in the sky took the form of fairies, angels, or lamp-carrying witches on broomsticks. As the new technological age dawned and faith in science rose, they instead became wondrous flying machines, as if powered by our own optimism for the future. Chapter 4, Take the Train, is where the narrative of Point Pleasant begins in earnest, starting with the large wave of UFO and Mothman sightings that swept through the Ohio Valley area in the summer of the Garuda that brought Keel to the Point Pleasant area. At a high level, the story is very simple. Keel comes to Point Pleasant, interviews tons of contactees, makes some groovy friends with locals, witnesses several UFOs and strange lights cruising above the skies of West Virginia. Eventually, his investigations lead him to what he believes to be direct contact with these, quote, ultra-terrestrial entities. The entities, namely the mysterious Mr. Apple, contact Keel through various methods, including mysterious crackly phone calls, electronic malfunctions, and most often, through contactees who know him. It is through these discussions that Keel begins to receive what he believes are prophetic warnings of the future. These include the supposed assassination of the Pope in the Middle East, which did in fact nearly come true, uh, several plane crashes, and other tragedies which had a nasty habit of actually happening. Eventually, his sources began to speak of an upcoming solar flare EM event which would cause planet-wide destruction. At this point in the narrative, Keel has been harassed by mysterious phone calls, malfunctioning equipment, his phone has been tapped, he's received mysterious letters, and the malicious games of the non-people have challenged his grip on reality. But through it all, the predictions have nearly always come true. Thus, he believes in the coming EM event and does his best to prepare as much as you could, I guess. Yeah. 
As it turns out, the EM event was sadly just another game, one meant to keep him looking to the skies while the real danger was much closer to home. He was in New York when the Silver Bridge collapsed into the Ohio River, carrying 46 of Point Pleasant's finest to a watery grave. Among the dead were many of the original Mothman witnesses, adding a poignant and haunting tone to the tragedy and leading many to wonder if the mysterious winged creature caused the catastrophe or if it was merely a harbinger of the horror to come. Uh, forgive me if I'm wrong, but wasn't the family he originally bothered in the beginning intro, weren't, didn't they also die on the bridge? Yes, yes, they did. Yeah, the two people who uh, whose house he showed up at to talk to the home, they were among the dead. Uh, so was the young man who was of the part of the couple of teenagers that saw it when they were necking. Yep. Now, a noted omission from this summary is, you might have noticed, the Mothman. Huh. Keel does commit one entire chapter to detailing the actual Mothman sightings from a pair of young lovers who spotted the red-eyed beast at an old TNT area to everyday men and women who spotted it lurking about in their bushes. However, it would be fair to say that the Mothman acts as more of a launching point for Keel's larger theories regarding the nature of reality and the phenomenon, because as we said earlier, he saw the Mothman as only one mere expression of a larger force. Which is why we also see UFOs, mysterious men in phantom cars, ghosts, and other such encounters presented right alongside the top-billed star. In the end, the Mothman Prophecies does not offer any conclusions. The strange events that beset Point Pleasant and the ensuing tragedy are left without true resolution in the reader's hearts. No Mothman is netted and paraded before the press. No team of monster hunters fell the savage beast in revenge for its role in destroying the bridge. And Keel himself finds no answers. Just a long string of events which lead him baffled and reeling. As such, the events that occur feel less like a story and more like a fever dream. Strange images, sounds, lights, and monsters in the dark form a nightmarish tapestry of high strangeness, which, like those entities, arise into parts, leaving only confusion and terror in their wake. Well, and for those like Keel, a rabid fascination. <laughs> yeah. So. It's heavy. Like, if you actually think about it, like. Oh, it, it's, it's super heavy. Keel is, I mean, we're. We're going to get deeper into Keel. Like, like right now, we're going we're gonna to go through Mothman Prophecy. Somehow we're going to do, you know, uh, from the Eighth Tower, Trojan Horse, we're going to have to do. Uh, but, yeah, it's, it's always heavy. Like, yeah. it, I, but here's the funny thing is that it's heavy, but Keel himself didn't take it too seriously, which is always interesting. Uh, I found a lot of information. I was trying to do some research into him that basically no one really knew what he actually believed at the end of the day. He presented his ideas but it's a big difference between this is an, a theory that I have and this is my actual belief because it almost changed depending on who he was talking to. Well, and I think that I think that's intentional on his part. Yeah, uh, because, well, and Richard Keel, like it or not, believe what he says or not. He didn't. Richard Keel or whatever. Who's his, Richard? Whatever his Dick? name is. Dick? Keel, whatever the fuck his name is. John. Uh, John Keel. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Richard Keel. I don't know him. I don't you know forget him. the most common fucking name. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, I'm a stoner. <laughs> uh, no, I, it's, 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 it's perfectly in line with, with his character to absolutely change the narrative, not necessarily the facts, but the narrative, depending on who he's talking to. Um, and that. Yeah. Both of you have heard my my rapidly evolving theory that John Keel has a lot of unprocessed trauma from this time in his life and probably has a lot of survivor's guilt. That tracks with 
the way that he distributes information. He comes across to me as a very mistrustful man who tends to self-martyr simply because he does not he does not believe in anyone around him enough to give them all of the information. He says it repeatedly in the book. It's like you can't tell UFO enthusiasts the full truth because they make stupid decisions based off of it. Exactly. And, I think the exception to that would be Mary Hire. And Mary Hire yeah. is gone. And yeah. isn't that the root of his problem right now? I mean, yeah. I mean, he dedicated the book to her even. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So Mary Hire for those who have not read the book, was a local newspaper woman in the Point Pleasant area who John Keel had worked with quite a bit over the course of the summer, well, the year of the Garuda. Um, and she was heavily involved in reporting a lot of the UFO sightings and things that happened around that area, which, you know, when the giant tragedy happened and 46 of your neighbors died, all those stories fell out of the press. Right. Uh, it kind of ended the year of the Garuda because... I mean, after that, no one wanted to read about it anymore. They, everyone was, I guess, a bit shell shocked. Considering you look at a town the size of Point Pleasant around that time, there no one in town was untouched. Oh yeah, every family had lost someone or they knew someone. It it was a big catastrophic event. And for the record, I, I you know, obviously our hearts go out to the victims even yeah. way back oh, then. It was it's yeah. still a tragedy. Yeah. No. And and uh, fuck, I lost my train of thought. Okay, so I have some discussion questions because, you know, we are a book club. Yay! Um, I got my tea cozy and I'm wearing my cardigan. So, you know, good book club material. That's a flannel. It's the magic of radio, asshole. Oh. <laughs> I live with these people. So, first, I, I want to ask. You guys have read the book? Uh, neither of you had read it before, correct? Correct. Never. I hadn't even watched the movie. Had you heard of it? I, I In passing. I think I had probably heard of the book and I I had heard of Mothman. I obviously I knew who Mothman was and I was I was of the I was of the camp of just like Mothman is a friend. Mothman is a Mothman is a friendly phenomenon. I mean to be completely fair, I kind of think Mothman's a friend. I I I fall more in the he was here to warn us camp, but this is based off nothing. Uh it's just what I what I feel would be nice. I mean th- on that note, just because I, 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 I agree with you, I don't think Mothman was the antagonist by any means because there's no evidence that he was that Mothman, it, whatever, moth person, yeah, moth person. That there was, there's no evidence that suggests that he did anything more than say something is going to happen by appearing. Well, and it's not even that he said it; he just appeared. And other entities said it. Other right. entities gave the warning. Uh, Mr. Apple, spelled Mr. A-P-O-L. He was where a lot of the warnings came from. Uh, Indrid Cold gave Woody Derenberger a couple, which Indrid Cold is a whole nother topic for those who are for those who are not, I guess, in this world. If you're involved in the UFO lore at all, if you have any passing interest, you've probably heard of Indrid Cold. Indrid Cold. Indrid? He was among the strange events that happened during the year of the Garuda in the Point Pleasant area. A local farmer named Woody Derenberger uh, was driving along when a straight up UFO pretty much landed on the road. And the smiling guy stepped out and introduced himself as Indrid Cole. And thus began 
Thus began one of the most beautiful friendships in all of yeah. UFO Woody history. Woody Derenberg, I mean, John Keel only touches on Injured Cold a bit just to kind of tell Woody's initial stories. But Woody Derenberger wrote two more books past it about his friendship with Injured Cold that apparently went on for years past the year of the Garuda and uh, which involved him going to the planet Lanulos. Yes, I'm so excited to read uh, his, what, what was it called? Uh Dispatches from Lanulos or yeah. something like that. Yeah, we're yeah. we're going to get to those books. We'll yeah. we'll get to Woody. Um seriously guys, it's 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 a beautiful friendship. Indrid Cold and uh, and Woody Derenberger were, were ride or die. Yeah. He, he, he cured Woody's achy stomach. Yes, he did. He's, yeah, he showed up and gave him special space medicine to cure his achy stomach and introduced him to his wife, Kimi. Injured yeah. Cold the Alien is married to Kimmy. Well, he has two sons, uh, Connor and Connor. Oh, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, no, there's a whole lore. I can't wait to dig into it. The names in this book, y'all. <laughs> okay, so before we get, sorry, before we get into discussion questions, cut earlier where I mentioned the discussion questions. We'll get it to that later. Matter. Uh, I want to quick, very quickly go over some details about John Keel's life. Uh, John Keel was a journalist most popular for knowing what's called new journalism, which I can get into later. He was born in Hornell, New York. Uh, his parents split early, so he spent a long time, much like some of us did, uh, reading books as a child, specifically a lot of sci-fi. I uh, went to New York City at the age of 16 in search of career as a writer uh, and worked there for a bit before he was drafted to serve in the Korean War, uh, during which they gave him basically a clerical job. He refused to shoot anyone. Uh, conscientious, conscientious objector, I guess is what you'd call it, but I don't know if they had the term then. So he was basically given a clerical job in Frankfurt, Germany. Uh, he saw his first UFO in Egypt because what part of his job there was he basically shot propaganda films for them. Okay. Uh, and, and and did well, and also did some like wartime reporting. He ran special uh news uh, radio programs for Army Radio, and one of those was he went to Egypt. Uh, and he was doing some kind of special broadcast from inside one of the pyramids. Uh, while he was there, he did see his first UFO as, quote, the thing I saw was Saturn shaped and appeared and it appeared the center was not moving, but the outside was spinning. It was a very off thing and various people were looking at it with me. After that, that kind of kicked him down the rabbit hole, and he spent three years adventuring around the world, largely through the Middle East and Asia, uh, chasing stories of the paranormal. Once, he spent several snowbogged weeks hunting the Himalayan Yeti. Uh, he trained and became an impressive stage magician. <laughs> yeah, he le supposedly learned snake charming in Delhi. Uh, he spent Halloween night 1952 in the original Frankenstein Castle. And as I said before, he did an armed forces radio broadcast from inside the Great Pyramid of Giza. Uh, he published his first book, an autobiography, at the age of 27, because, you know, your, your life is done at 27. That's when his autobiography age. According to Machine Gun Kelly, that that's true. Yeah. He's got a song, 27. Well, if we can't trust Machine Gun Kelly, who can we trust? <laughs> uh, that book was that book was called Jadoo. I don't even think that's what that song is about. I, I don't think it is. <laughs> um he then came home and he worked for several uh, movie and TV companies, primarily as a script writer. I actually was a he was actually a joke writer for a lot of notable comedians around the 1950s, 1960s. Uh, the biggest would probably be Johnny Carson. 
Oh. He wrote quite a bit, bit of Johnny Carson's material. Everything I learn about this man makes everything else make more sense. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, he had an opportunity to pitch to pitch an article for Playboy, and what they took it. They offered him the chance to write an article about the UFO craze, and after that, he hurled himself into writing about the paranormal, and he never looked back. Uh, he actually was responsible for resurrecting the 14 Society of New York, which has since crumbled again. <laughs> um and he, I mean, he worked various odd jobs. He he appeared on several interviews and really became a fixture of kind of the paranormal Mount Rushmore until his death in 2009. So really, I mean, saying he's a journalist is it's a loose term. Well, not really. I mean, he did do serious journalism for the military and prior to that. And I mean, if you're going to say that writing about the paranormal is not serious journalism, then we have to have a fist fight right now. No, I'm not saying I'm not saying it in that sense. I guess I guess I, I guess my point was from the from an outside perspective. Sure. Uh, from the perspective of, say, someone who's never heard of John Keel or thought that Mothman was some sort of Chinese ripoff Batman. Um yeah, he's a loon. And in the word and in the eyes of much of the UFO community, he's a loon. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, because what you got to understand is when you're looking at any of these paranormal communities, you've, you've it, 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 people like to think, well, yeah, that's what those nut jobs believe. And I, I dare you to find two people at a paranormal con who have the same belief structure at the end of the day. It, it's People always have their pet theory. They've always had their idea of what's true. And anything that doesn't jive with that, oh, that's hokum. And the fact of the matter is a very popular UFO theory, even now, is the nuts and bolts where they are they are physical craft. They come from another planet. They were built in a factory and there's little dudes piloting them. And uh, John Keel didn't believe that. And so it's and once you move beyond those physical, you know, physical hard items, Everything becomes frou-frou-y. It's the science of consciousness. It's hallucinatory episodes. It's things that someone can't hold, they can't touch. And because of that, they they have trouble wrapping their head around it or or believing in it. It's, you know, which is, I, get, I mean, ultimately, if you want to look at the world, the paranormal through the lens of John Keel, it's closer to faith than it is to science. Yeah, and, and I definitely, I definitely get that vibe for sure from him. Yeah. Okay. So let's get into some discussion questions here. So the first one, one sentence, raw, right out the gate. What's your first impression of the book, having completed it? Who do you want to go first? I don't give a shit. All right, Jay, go. God damn it. Okay. First impression right out the gate. Uh, Fascinating. It gave me a headache. And I think I agree with maybe 25 to 30 percent of it. Wow. You're a real weirdo. <laughs> uh, you can't see it, but uh, Jay was making some rude gestures. Two out of five stars. Not enough demons. <laughs> not enough demons. I mean, that's fair. Knowing what knowing they didn't advertise demons, <clears throat> knowing what book you chose next, I can I can see why you would why that would be the minute you take something where I'm like, that could be a demon. And you're like, but it's an alien. I'm like, oh, I'm bored of it now. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, actually, no. In John Keel's opinion, though, demons Those, are aliens they're and the they're also thing. angels yeah. and they're also whatever you need them yeah. to be or whatever you think they are. And they'll they'll be it for you. You asked for my raw opinion. They oh, my God. It's like they're. I don't mean, I, I lost my thought. You go ahead. 
Uh, all right. So my my initial thought. Well, for somebody. So I guess keep in mind, I had no prior experience uh, reading any kind of high strangeness or extraterrestrial stuff outside of like the sci-fi movies that I've watched. Mm -hmm. Um, so going into that, I didn't understand quite a lot at (laughs) first because I didn't understand the concept of what he was trying to say, you know, until I like actually broke it down and started doing research on my own. Like I finished the book and I was done and I went, I don't know what happened. I mean, that's fair, but it's also a lot more than one sentence. Yeah, I'm sorry. You should be. We'll get better at this in future episodes. I will not. I will refuse growth. Yeah, no, (laughs) we won't won't get better. We're all talkers, and that's just what's going to (laughs) happen. Okay, so okay, so taking that in stride, let's take let's take a all right. So we we have our two hats right here in front of us, patented Noctivagon hats. Yeah. All right, so everyone, take your uh, patented tinfoil believer cap. Cool. Put it on. All right. Affix it with the bolts. God, I love being this person. (laughs) Okay, so. If it's true, if every, if John Keel's view of reality that we are perpetually at the mercy of these games that these outsider entities are playing, taking forms, uh, taking shape shifting around us, making us believe in very specific theories like I believe in UFOs, but ghosts are ridiculous and trying to split us up. What if it's all that's true? What does that mean? What do, what's our understanding of reality then? I mean, obviously, I guess it depends, right? If if the idea is there are these other entities, yeah, that they play games with us. I mean, arguably, all that all that would say is all these things in life that we've experienced through, like, throughout our life, right? And throughout other people's lives, that they've had some kind of supernatural occurrence, be it the presence of God, be it um you know seeing a ghost be it feeling like their house is haunted poltergeist kind of activities anything like that then we're arguably saying that what those entities are are the same thing as mothman as the same thing as any of these other entities and one we're saying that believing in these kind of things like from a faith perspective that it's true right in one form or another, it's true. It may not be what we thought it was initially, but it's true. Yeah. Um, if that is true, it is the single most devastating piece of news I have ever received in my <laughs> life. Um, what do you mean that I I am essentially an ant farm kept by a bunch of a class of sadistic fourth graders? I like of it, it, that was kind of my response at least halfway through the book. If I was like Mister Keel huge if true but why are you telling me this i can do nothing with this information except stand on my roof and scream to the indifferent stars above why are you doing this to me and the answer will be because we can and i i so so it's interesting you asked the question what could we do about it and i'm gonna i'm gonna hit you guys with a quote i didn't share with you uh before we did this because i wanted to get your i want to get your surprise faces here so, how would you feel knowing that in a later interview, John Keel called the ultra-terrestrials a literary device? And what I mean by that is, here's the quote. Basically, what I attempted to do was set up a frame of reference that the reader could, hopefully, understand. Obviously, I failed in this. 
Even now, people are still assuming that ultra-terrestrials are actual entities. When I said in five books, carefully spelled out and defined, is that we are the intelligence that controls the phenomenon. So is he trying to say that we're all like chaos magicians? I mean, yeah, basically. I mean, he, he's trying to imply that our expectations of reality as shaped by our belief are causing these manifestations. Like, I am a UFO person and I want so badly to see a flying saucer and I'm going out every night and staring at the sky. Eventually, the force of that belief will cause reality to comply, which is, I think, the argument that he's ultimately trying to make. And we'll get into this when we get to uh, through the eighth watchtower. Even then, he he does contradict this, even the statement I just read several times by seemingly speaking explicitly about entities that have uh motives far beyond us well, and how does he explain ufos well in his i mean in his mind the phenomenon yes it's something that we control but it's still something that is okay by we control i think what he's saying is it's not that really ultimately that i control it that you control it that jay controls it it's that we the, the royal we controls it yeah it is a manifestation of our fears our cultural uh, expectations the zeitgeist of the time you look around the 1950s we had dropped the atomic bomb world war ii happened we were entering into this new age where it seemed like science was going to take us far and away past what we ever dreamed um and so what if that did that sh that kind of cultural paradigm shift so caused a shift? And so no longer we saw angels in the sky. We saw wondrous flying machine. You could also make the argument that UFOs in John Keel's theory can be explained by those are more advanced individuals who have begun to be able to consciously manipulate the phenomenon in order to create spacecraft or appear as if they have traveled from one place as if they have traveled from one place to another. That's an interesting idea. The like that there, I mean, it kind of goes more into esoteric ideas. Um, so like in a lot of magical practices, there's this concept of what's called the secret masters. The secret masters being practitioners of esoterica who have become so proficient in magic, whatever your definition of magic is, that they have transcended this liminal reality and become part of I guess the next freak level, the next frequency of existence. And in doing so, they have become kind of removed from it. They can watch, they can interact with us, but they are very, you know, distant. Um, and so I kind of see that. That's interesting because that that's a, one of those situations where we see overlap between UFO lore and a really old occult lore. You're talking about old hermetic stuff. You're talking about old left-hand stuff. And part, part um, of the reason I bring that up is just because, you know, the tinfoil hat is on. So so operating under the assumption that everything Woody Derenberger saw that then got reported to John Keel, that John Keel then reported to us, uh, Lanulos was described as being shockingly, quote unquote, unadvanced of like that they were living in simple houses and it seemed closer to like an earlier stage of humanity. Maybe Indrid's people devoted themselves to mysticism and met metaphysical studies to the point where they could begin to manipulate the phenomenon to the point where they either a simply forsook the rest of those societal advancements of they're like why would we develop cars we're learning to elevate our consciousness why would we develop medicine when if we get to a certain point we can just heal ourselves by thinking about it or b that it's like yeah, it's like we we didn't necessarily forsake those things. It just got to the point where we didn't need them. 
We went back to living in huts because we can keep ourselves warm by deciding the sun is closer today. Well, that's exa- that's what I was thinking. Like, just because something seems prim- primitive to us doesn't necessarily mean that it is. By whose reasoning, whose by whose design did we say that having cars is a te- technological advancement? It's also destroyed our environment. Precisely. Well, I mean. And also, well, you just asked, like, primitive by whose standards? By Woody Derenberger's standards. And, by a, but that said. And Woody's a, Woody is nothing more than uh, a human who yeah. grew up in a time of thriving capitalism. True. All right. So now, but here's the question then. All right. So if we let's follow that line of thought. So let's say that they are the secret masters, the, 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 the hidden chiefs, whatever you want to call them, the ascended beings. And maybe maybe some are alien. Maybe they ascended on another planet like, you know, Landulos. Why play the games? Why why, why make mysterious phone calls and imitate uh, imitate John Keel's voice when calling contactees? Why do we still have the tinfoil hat on? For a little bit. OK, just like just this last question. Keep the hat on because I have. Something to say about like the games in regards to potential. Okay, take the hat off then. Okay. Um so I was reading um like and it was an article summary of a a book that I don't want to read. <laughs> so I didn't so I didn't read it. It was it's one of uh Gary Barker's books that he wrote. Okay. And Gary Barker is uh, another journalist in quotations that um John Keel mentions briefly towards the beginning of the Mothman book, if I remember right. Mm-hmm. So according to Gary Barker, uh, he and John Keel were going into Point Pleasant together. And yeah. they were gonna they were gonna work on this story together. And Gary Barker actually wrote the first couple chapters of what later became Mothman prophecies, according to him. And that part of Gary's story, I actually believe I could see that, and mm-hmm. I could see Keel being the kind of person that would absolutely rip a couple chapters off somebody else to make something completely different. Because at the end of the day, what Gary Barker claims to have written is nothing like what Mothman prophecies became. Right. However, uh, Gary Barker also claims that the phone calls that came from uh, Mister Apple and other people were, in fact, him drunk dialing him and mumbling random words into the phone to <laughs> fuck with John Keel, which just sounds like a bitter old man who didn't get the recognition he wanted out of a book. Yeah. So that's the shit that he made up. Like that's what I, that's that's what that sounds like to me. Okay. So, but here's the thing. Like, okay, I still got my my believer cap on. Okay. So, but in, the, in looking at that, I guess the re- you'd refute that by saying. If we're assuming everything John Keel said is true, which you should not, uh, but if we're assuming everything John Keel said was 100% the events as they occurred, he showed up, he did those blind, double blind tests. He would show up at a random farmhouse somewhere in the Point Pleasant area where there was no contactee, there was no story to follow, but he would show up specifically to test if the non-people noticed. And oft, and sometimes he would show up and the person at the home would be like, go away. I just got called about you. Someone warned me about you. Or someone showed me like, you were already here. You already talked to me. And when he hadn't. And so well, I, I guess I guess that is the whole in Gary Barker's theory. He's like, unless Gary Barker was just going through a phone book calling everyone in Point Pleasant. No, no, I'm not. And I'm not saying that like Gary Barker didn't claim that the phone calls from the other people like you could honestly write that off as just hubbub that, you know, John Keel wrote. 
for the sake of his book, mm-hmm. if we want, if we wanted to just write it off, because that's what a lot of people do. They just yeah. write it off as he wrote this as nonfiction, but it's clearly a fictional story. I don't believe that. But I mean, you, you, there's too many other statements that have been made from Point Pleasant in the area by other people. Oh, yeah. Something happened. So, oh. Sorry, okay. uh, so keeping the keeping the believer hat on in terms of why are they playing these games? I have a couple of explanations for that. One, maybe they're bored. Maybe being ascended is super boring. And uh, like, you know, I I had the analogy earlier of like, we're an ant farm kept by sadistic fourth graders. Uh, Maybe they're sadistic fourth graders. And sometimes they're like, take that one out, pull its legs off, see what it does. And then they're like, and put it back in. So the others are like, where are your legs? And it's like, God did it. Like... Um, the other thing is keeping the believer hat on, but saying, let's disregard John Keel level nihilism and not assume that this is sadistic. Like John Keel clearly assumes it is. Uh, and again, I'll go more into his unprocessed trauma later. Uh, there is a concept in Zen Buddhism that the way that you ascend somebody, the way that somebody achieves enlightenment is through profound suffering of a physical, emotional, and mental variety of like, have you ever, have you ever heard people say things that sound stupid of just like, what is the sound of one hand clapping? That is an actual thought exercise that Buddha, that, that Zen Buddhist masters will give to their disciples. And they're like, when you can answer a question like that, when you can find the truth in that phrase, that will start to break your mind enough that you can push past the false reality of Maya and begin seeing the truth of enlightenment of another. Another one is show me your true face, the face you had before you were born. And that you could possibly interpret some of these games as maybe this person was not attempting to hinder John Keel and his friends. Maybe this was a concerted effort to ascend him that did not go well because some people cannot handle enlightenment. The process of attempting to attain enlightenment can break certain people and make them worse than they were before. Okay. So I I like that, that they're helping us. Um, But I will, I have one comment to make. Um, one hand clapping is a slap. I think it's a little deeper than that. Get out of my temple. <laughs> uh, I mean, okay. and to, like with the believer cap on, I guess, like, what's the point of the games? Like, if that it, what's the point of uh, demonic possession? What's the point? Uh, not even, not even possession, but what's the point of a poltergeist? What's the? I mean, you could like the same thing there are different entities we don't know we we don't necessarily know what their uh what their motive might be if i like the idea that maybe they were trying to loop maybe they were trying to loop john keel into something uh maybe not the silver bridge collapse but something else that he didn't pick up on well i mean that's certainly a direction um for those who haven't watched it yet a hellier took with their second season which that hellier is very steeped in kind of the John Keel worldview. Oh, and also Point Pleasant and Mothman. But that was definitely the, the angle they they started to take there, where it's some sort of initiation into by a secret master or the hidden chiefs. A lot of, honestly, a lot of, like, 
John Keel's belief or what he claims is his beliefs um, coincide with a lot of like a lot of aspects of like chaos magic. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like a lot of it, because it's like if you believe it, it will come like or even even uh, what we were talking about years and years ago, the Terminites, that that whole thing with storytelling and yeah. the energy poured into it. It's the same kind of thing. Yeah. No, I, I mean, old Terminism is it, it's functionally pretty much the same thing as chaos magic. Right. It's it, but all right. So let's uh, all right. So let's take a deep breath. And peel these believer caps off. Okay. How much do you think is true? How much of these events do you think happened? I know earlier we got like a 25, 30%. That was a belief. That was not me saying that I think that he made up 70% of the book necessarily. I actually, full disclosure, I don't know what in here he made i could not make even a guess at what in here was made up and what in here was true i agree with maybe 25 to 30 percent of how john keel interprets the phenomenon of i do think that human belief is a driving factor in how these things appear and how these things behave i think i think that the I think that there is a stronger connection between UFOs, the Fae, demons, ghosts, and humans with supernatural powers, quote unquote, supernatural powers than I previously believed there was because I believed it's like that. That's all just completely separate things. That's all just completely separate things. And for a long time, I straight up just didn't believe in aliens. I was like, yeah, demons are a thing, but aliens, that's that's bullshit, which in retrospect, I'm like, shut up, you're 15. But <laughs> so yeah, I believe, and I've I've talked to you to this t- to you two about this off microphone that I think that John Keel's nihilistic interpretation of it is is too far gone, and I think it's rooted more in how he was damaged as a person than what is necessarily actually happening. I don't think that the entire universe is designed to keep us weak and ignorant and trapped in the ant farm. Okay, Rory? I think, like, ultimately, ultimately, I don't really have a way to debunk it. And uh, admittedly, I tried. Um, Like, I even looked up, like, debunking Mothman and, like, read through several articles, and most of it was bullshit. You know, the debunking was less convincing than than Mothman. Yeah, it's Sandhill Cranes. Exactly. Sandhill Cranes. Sandhill Cranes. Um, <laughs> um, but oh, my God. Like how how the events occurred. Um, I think ultimately, I think they occurred at least tangentially in the way that they described. And ultimately, that comes back to my belief that to my opinion of I don't believe that John Keel tells us even a third of what he actually thinks or believes. I sincerely believe that John Keel and several of his friends were being actively stalked. I do not know who they were being stalked by, but there is overwhelming evidence that someone was actively fucking with their person. His phone was tapped. That we can confirm. It doesn't matter what else else you want to say. Any of the supernatural, his phone was tapped. And and here's the thing. At this point, like when he was going into Point Pleasant, he was already pretty well known in the uh in the UFO yeah, community. He was a known Fordian. So here's the thing. 
we have a place that is already at this point rolling with UFO uh, sightings. Well known enough that it's attracted the attention of both Gary Barker, John Keel, and probably countless other people at the time that have come in there as UFO researchers. So, and we know that in the 50s and 60s, we know for a fact that the CIA was going around and telling people to stop, uh, stop looking into UFOs. We know that. Yeah, Mirageman. Yeah. And uh, so I, there, there is no doubt in my mind that the second that the, that the you know, the, the letter agencies found out that John Keel was looking into Point Pleasant, that they were like, tap his phone. Because back then, back then they did. I, I doubt they even needed a full-on warrant to get that. I don't shit. think the CIA needs a warrant today. Uh, well, because of the NSA, they need a little bit more. But no, they 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 can uh, they can they can listen. They're listening right now. Hi, CIA. Hello. All right. So, I mean, Hi. personally, I, I I think to shed a little light on this question, uh, I want to talk for a moment about the specific type of journalist that uh, John Keel was, which he was part of what was called the new journalism. Um, so th- is that NU like new metal? No, it's NEW. Oh, this is coming from uh, an art. This is coming from a essay called The New Demonology, John Keel and the Mothman Prophecies by David Clark. And what's interesting in this is he actually did uh, interview John Keel for the paper, which is where some of the quotes I've pulled come from. Uh, But what's interesting in there, they talk about the fact that John Keel was a new journalist. And what new journalism was, according to Clark, uh, it was a... It was a form of journalism in which objectivity is not the goal. And what I mean by that is very traditional journalism was you present the facts as you can, as you know them and as clearly as you can. What new journalism was is saying, well, let's take the reporter and insert them in the action, build it more like a storyline, like a, you know, a narrative people can get involved in and get emotionally attached to. Uh, and right or wrong, that's what new journalism was. And it was very popular at the time. I see the Mothman prophecies as new journalism. And what I mean by that is I think probably over under, I would guess 75% of the events in here did happen. I think maybe only 10% are shown exactly as they happened. What I mean by that is names might have been changed. John Keel might have put himself in a little bit more of an important position than he was in that situation beforehand. Or, uh, quite frankly, the timeline. It, it could have been this this... Uh, the, there might have been two weeks where there was a 20 events all crammed together and then six months of him freezing his ass off on a hill somewhere looking at an empty sky. And that might make more sense in terms of what's, you know, how the phenomenon actually expresses itself out in the world. But it doesn't make as good of a story. I think that was almost intentional, too, in, in the way that he wrote it. Yeah, um, because he he bounces between years uh, within chapters, yeah. you know, within sentences. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. All right. So here's here's a good lowball question, kind of segue out of that. Do you think the Mothman had anything to do with the Silver Bridge collapse? Do you think those two things were actually connected, or have we just conflagrated these two things together in our minds? I don't. I don't think they were connected. Yeah, I don't not maybe not directly. And the reason is because I don't I guess if it was, if it was, it wasn't because Mothman wanted to kill 43 people or whatever. 46, 46 people. 
I don't think that that was the intention. If if that was the case, because we have no evidence to say that Mothman is a anything but a friend. Exactly. So, I, I if anything, Mothman was trying to warn us of it. But if that was the case, Mothman did a really shitty job. <laughs> yeah, I I honestly don't know because the way that you tell the difference between correlation and causation is repeated application of the experiment under controlled circumstances. And we can't repeat the experiment for various reasons. One, Mothman left the ant farm and has fucked off into the extra dimensional class of mean fourth graders, uh, as far as we can tell. And two, we can't just keep collapsing bridges and killing roughly 50 people every time I want to see if Mothman did it. But what if, what if like Mothman is only this in uh, and this is something that i thought about a lot because i you know uh what if mothman is just this incarnation uh or this what you know whatever entity this is chose to be at this time so for example what if you know what was before seen as a thunderbird you know to mm -hmm. to natives uh what if that was mothman this time around and over in um was it China or uh, or Japan over there? There is a very another very similar uh, entity, like bird-like entity that they have spotted over there as well. That was always spotted before some kind of uh, tragic event. Oh, I mean, John Keel would certainly believe that. Yeah. I the other the other thing that leads to me that. The thing that makes me lean towards no Mothman might have just been a coincidence is just because, and this is very different than other inter than other things I've seen of Mothman because this is this is much more in depth. Based on the stories that John Keel repeated in this book, Mothman does not strike me as an intelligent entity. Mothman strikes me thoroughly as as an animal. Like I don't. Based on what I've seen, I don't think Mothman is much more intelligent than your average Doberman pincher. And uh, like that one story about how Moth, when everyone was over at the TNT plant with their fucking cameras and they were trying to catch a glimpse of the winged weirdo. And then miles away, Mothman was bashing up against someone's window trying to get in their house. That to me seemed like an animal that was trying to go back to its den, realized that its den was full of strange bald predators and it just went looking for sanctuary somewhere else. Like maybe it had been in that house before when it was empty and it was like, fuck, they're in here to now where do i go <laughs> i mothman seemed like it was frightened and tired and i don't think mothman gave a fuck about the bridge i think mothman was tired of being chased by tourists you know that's fair i here's the thing like if i i do think that there's pretty compelling arguments to be made for that uh for mothman is some sort of you know, animal level intelligence that doesn't have any kind of supernatural abilities or anything like that but that said we're going from the keel from the keel interpretation here. I I would probably say if they are connected, it was not that Mothman did anything, and maybe not even that Mothman was uh, here to warn us. Very like I said before, the warnings didn't come from Mothman; they came from the mysterious non people who called Keel over the phone. The 
but I would say it, it's more likely that it's some sort of cosmic mechanism. And what I mean by that is it's something that is a naturally occurring part of our world that happens leading up to these death events, to these mass death events. And maybe that's because all those all that death causes some sort of psychic ripple across time, or maybe it's just an just a mystery that we'll never solve. I don't know. But I think if there is a connection, it's more like natural phenomena. It's more mechanical in yeah. nature. It is a cause and effect. It is not some not my bad. I'm not saying Mothman causes it. I'm saying the fact that it will happen causes Mothman to be there. It's like a metaphysical water cycle, and we're just seeing an earlier stage of it that later culminates in a bridge collapse. I mean, there there's a lot of compelling evidence out there around other tragedies and tragic of events where people have said that they saw something and usually something with wings mm -hmm. before that happened. I mean, and even in even in even in fiction, that kind of that kind of stuff pops up all the time. And that inspiration has to come from somewhere. The first thing that popped in my mind, of course, was uh, uh, the burning of the black spot in it. Oh, yeah. Because uh, Pennywise took the form of the giant bird. And how much of that is genetic memory from when we were small animals in ancient Africa being hunted by raptors? Raptors in, as in birds, right? Raptors Not as dinosaurs? Okay. Raptors as in if birds. If you were about to be go like leap down the rabbit hole of the cavemen ran alongside dinosaurs majestic they, under God's sun. No, they did. A raptor as in a bird of prey. Yeah. All right. So... I don't know why I decided that, that was something to throw shit on. I'm here talking about a giant moth. Also, your shirt is aliens abducting dinosaurs. They probably did. Yeah, that could happen. I'm just saying, you can't shit on dinosaurs when you're wearing a dinosaur shirt. I Nick love dinosaurs. I know Nick you do. Nick wasn't shitting on dinosaurs. Nick was shitting on me misunderstanding dinosaurs, which I didn't. Okay, so let's... Uh, Jay's busy pointing himself out as an intellectual over here. So here's a question. What are the holes you see? What are the problems with this narrative? What are what are the, the threads we can pull at? You mean besides all the missing information? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um the entire the entire story of John Keel in the 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 Air Force, the high ranking Air Force officer's uh office is is one of the funniest things I've ever read. Oh. <laughs> and I don't think it happened. It's y'all. Y'all, you need to read this portion of the book where John Keel is describing that he's sitting across a desk from this high ranking oh, Air yes. Force official <laughs> and the Air Force official yeah. is telling him there's no UFOs, son. No UFOs. And he's describing it's like and the Air Force officer was switching between good cop and bad cop and he wouldn't even leave the room to like pretend it was a different guy like he's, he was sending his twin brother in. No, he would just within the same sentence just switch from being my best friend trying to get me coffee and talk to me about these observances to say you're a nut. You belong in the crack house. <laughs> and when, you're go, when you go home tonight, there's going to be an assassin with dwarfism under your bed oh ready God. to kill you with your own Liars. Well, don't forget and the folder. The, the folder is fo the best part. So there and and just yes, the folder is is it's mwah, it's just chef's kiss. Chef's there's kiss. a bright. 
There's a bright red folder on the dude's desk that says top secret. Do not open. We're just any fucking moron can pick it up. And at one point, this official walks away from his desk and leaves Mr. Keel just sitting there staring at this bright red folder while his secretary is actively stuffing it with newspaper articles. Well, I think John Keel just thinks that we're stupid enough to believe that a top that anything top secret is actually in a red folder. Here's the thing. There's a part of me that absolutely believes that story. And the reason is, if you want to say, if you if you do follow the idea that the government has not wanted people to look into this, like they've done some research into it, but they're trying to cover some things up. And you got somebody like John Keel coming in and asking questions, and he's obviously a persistent guy. I could absolutely see, all right, well, send Sergeant Skippy down there to fuck with him for a few hours. We'll put a folder on the table, and hey, maybe we'll get him to, like, when I walk away, get him to open it up, and then we can have that on camera and, like, arrest him for it. I mean, that's that's definitely a play I could see the military taking. And that would feed into John Keel's paranoia if that actually happened, if it's just like, I mean, see, that would, that would see have- the- that would have fueled the beginnings of it for sure. Cause I believe, I believe that he wasn't as paranoid uh, until the events of point pleasant. I believe that that paranoia actually happened the way that he described it in the book because it felt so raw in the way that he wrote it. Because yeah. Yeah. And I believe you. And it's part, it's the root of my belief that I think John Keel had severe post-traumatic stress disorder and a lot of survivor's guilt and he didn't have a word for it and he never dealt with it. And I think that absolutely cover colored his interpretation of what was happening. Yeah, Well, in the late sixties, PTSD didn't really exist exist well i mean you think about it like he spent a year like i mean yes he was off and on he was back in new york he was going occasionally going and doing writing jobs but he spent a year with these people uh working with them very closely talking to them hearing their stories getting involved in their lives and that many new people that he had met that he had empathized with that he might have felt something for just gone and and he's still alive. And none of that, he's not, he wasn't even there. He was in New York. And then shortly after, Mary Heyer, who was his friend, dies of cancer. He he was he was in New York with his uh with his bowl of popcorn waiting for something else to happen. And then instead, 46 people, many of which he knew, died. Which is, if anything, uh kind of like the giant middle finger from the non-people just saying, Yeah, buddy, we won. Yeah, yeah we we got you. Yeah. Like we we, we thought we, we we had you all hold up when really we were over here just murdering your friends. And and I I there's a part of me that thinks that that part, like you know, the non-people fucking with him, that I think something legit happened. Was it the government? Maybe. It very well could have been. Was it other people or, or was it some other non-person, actual other entity? Maybe. It very well could have been. But and there's a lot of questions that are left unanswered that will never get answered because of it. Mm -hmm. And also what you stated at the beginning of the episode that he made propaganda films for the government. I well, to to be completely fair, all we know is he worked the radio broadcast. It's rumored he did make propaganda films. So I should probably say that asterisk on that. That's rumored. If that is true. That adds another layer to this deep mistrust and this idea that he has of like he goes into several points in the books that um, for those of you who have not read the book, there are several instances where John Keel describes where he seems to have chanced across like battles between good and evil that to him he interprets as being very performative, very for our benefit and with the idea of like this is this is a play 
that these people are acting out so that we'll trust the ones they want us to trust. If he made propaganda films for the government because and he was compelled to do that because he didn't want to kill anybody, that also colors this perception that he is having. And it Mm -hmm. also lends a very interesting angle to why he has interpreted these facts the way he has. He already might have known what it was like to be at the mercy of a faceless entity that was so much stronger than you that would just pick you up and throw you away regardless of what you wanted just because it served their end goal. It served whatever war they were fighting. I think I think his time I think his time in the military actually plays a big part in his um his overall mental state even even not being uh like in Korea and doing part of the Korean War you can still very easily get PTSD from working overseas for example you said uh that he was that he spent time in Egypt Egypt has never been safe you know, and especially not for as white a man as John Keel, <laughs> you know, and if he's doing radio broadcast in Egypt, I mean, it's not it's no good morning Vietnam. He wasn't screaming. Good morning, Egypt. He you looks know? like a clean shaven Wilford Brimley. <laughs> like, I, and I'm not saying that that the man encountered any kind of violence because likely he, he didn't. But those interactions, being away from your family, being in the military mindset and having to work uh, according to that kind of commanding officer, the chain, the, the chain of command, you are nothing more than whatever you are literally, literally you are a, 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 a possession of the government when you are in the military like that mentality can drag can drag on somebody. And if he found an escape while he was in there through UFOs and through all this stuff and then the military let him run with it. It so all makes sense. I, I have a comment I want to make on that before we get into our last couple questions here. Um, what I find interesting about what you're saying with about that idea. So assuming the rumors are true, he did make propaganda of some form. I mean, he did do army radio broadcasts, and I assume there was some form of propaganda involved in that, Guaranteed. of course. Guaranteed. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, raising troop morale, even yeah. that's a form of propaganda. So. But if you think about that, if that is true, and you look at his history of journalism, especially sensational journalism, new journalism, uh, and then you look at this in light of his earlier comments, where if you go up against these things with a belief, they will take the form that will that will settle that belief, that will build upon it. Right. And what I find interesting there is, you know, he's someone who goes in with this kind of mindful of propaganda and suspicion and uh, some heartbreak. He had some struggle writing and all that. And then he encounters these things and they, you know, they play games with him. They they propagandize. They they do similar things to what he did. It seemed, you know, in a certain light, you could almost make the argument that John Keel fell victim to the very trap he was warning people against. Oh, for sure. It, it is karma. And I can guarantee you that that probably never crossed his mind. Oh, because I, yeah, for sure. Well, that's the nature of the phenomenon. It yeah. wouldn't. Yeah. And it, it's also just from a psychological standpoint. And this is not a condemnation of the man. This is just this is just a facet of his personality. John Keel self martyrs a lot and he he holds these things close to his chest because he clearly has a bit of a superiority complex and that's that that is something that informs this that that's something that informs my interpretation of how he does this is that he and it's again it's probably born of trauma he does not seem to 
be very he doesn't easily trust other people to stand up to the challenges he thinks he needs to face by himself. The dude would have gained a lot, a lot by smoking a blunt. <laughs> I'm I'm sorry. I do not believe he didn't. I don't know. I, I think he might have been the, the kind of straight edge person that believed in all this and didn't want to do the drug do do drugs, because I can also see him being a very like Reaganomics kind of uh person, you know, obviously pre that era, but I don't I don't know. I mean I that's one element of his life I didn't I didn't uncover in my research, but I'd be interested to find out what his relationship was with drugs. Because I could also see him being the kind of guy to take casually take LSD. Yeah. I mean I could see it for sure. Maybe I mean sixties. Right. Uh, it's it's the you know the the mid mid to late sixties LSD and weed are uh you know at a height at this point. But I, I guess, you know, one thing that I, I, I guess I'm basing this off of is his really the his relationship with Mary specifically. Mm -hmm. uh, she seemed, at least in the way that he wrote it, uh, wrote about her. And this could be intentional on his part. But she seemed very straight laced, very straight uh, on on the narrow for somebody who has witnessed and done as much as she did. Right. And I never got the impression that they were like out there on the hill smoking a blunt looking at the stars so much <laughs> as they were just on the hill looking at the stars because they knew what they were going to see. Yeah. How hysterical would it be if like John Keel never touched drugs once in his life and then it turns out that Mary Heyer was like doing LSD on the regular <laughs> and like every time they were going out to like watch UFOs, she was like, give me a second. She would just like do a line of cocaine right off the dashboard <laughs> of the car. Rest in <laughs> peace, Mary Heyer. God, that image is now going to be locked in my head. Mary, do you see that light over there? Sure do, John! <laughs> Lights everywhere! Big wings! She goes chasing after the UFO and the pilot is like, how is she keeping up with us? <laughs> <laughs> We're going 150 knots an hour. Elderly woman takes down passing plane with her teeth. <laughs> did he ever did he ever say how old Mary was? She was older. I don't know her exact age, but I know she was uh, she was at least late middle age somewhere in there because she I mean, she died not too long after the events of the book. Right. Uh, but that was of cancer. So that age might not matter there because I, I it, like I got the implication that she was older, but I never got the implication that she was much older than than Keel. Oh, I, she was. Yeah. Keel was he was a younger guy then uh, in the 70s yeah, or 60s. 60s. Yeah. So. OK, so let's get into our next question, because we have a couple more I want to get through here. The next one's Another lowball one. He described a lot, and I mean a lot, of different encounters with high strangeness in this. Some were things that he encountered. Many were just stories he collected that that kind of proved a point he was trying to make. If you had to pick one, your favorite encounter with high strangeness described in the book, what's your favorite? Woody. Okay, everything with Woody and injured cold. Yes. Yeah, that's fair. Um, it's amazing. Probably. <laughs> Probably the winged woman of Vietnam, just because that yeah. one freaked me out yeah. so much. Um, again, for those who have not read the book, the winged woman of Vietnam was described by two American soldiers. It was two American soldiers, right? I think so. Deployed in, in Vietnam during the crime, not the war, during the Vietnam crime. Cor correct. The Vietnam, the Vietnam crime. crime. And they were just, they were just hanging out doing, you know, imperialist things. And um, out of fucking basically nowhere, this, 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 this woman, this woman with all black burnt looking skin who didn't appear to have any bones in her arms and big pterodactyl wings coming from her arms just goes flapping slowly over their head. 
kids. And she's like a few feet away from that. She's a few feet away from them, close enough that they're like, she blotted out the moon when she went overhead. And they're like, and she just, she didn't really, like, it seemed like she knew she we were there, but she didn't give a shit about us. And she just flew away. And that it was such a small encounter where nothing happened, but they described it so vividly. And it almost freaks me out more that she didn't try to kill them because it was like, what are you doing and and what do you want and what are you did did the american government make you in the lab in a lab to swoop down and eat viet cong and you were like instead i'll eat fruit and small insects is that what happened wing woman of vietnam it's just a nice bat woman going to get her groceries jesus christ i'm gonna be i'm gonna be honest with you i kind of forgot that that story was in there not that it was a bad story i just forgot that it was in there it haunts me (laughs) Okay, so speaking of hauntings, let's go to what, in my opinion, is one of the creepiest parts of the book. Let's talk about the men in black. Ah. So throughout the book, John Keel, as well as several other contactees, are approached by uh, weirdos, Uh, people with stutters, people dressed out of time, uh, either fashion that is not in fashion yet or is badly out of date and they often have strange questions such as what would you do if someone told you to stop writing about ufos they asked that about mary hire like five separate times twice in was twice in a day yeah well and and so where do you think they fit into this what do you think what was your read on i guess that part of the phenomenon what why what what is this i mean my initial thought was it's the it's the cia that was that was my initial thought. But after the description of how they talked and uh, <clears throat> like what else they were, the you know, the weirdness about them, whatever. I guess if anything else, like if I was going to try and rationalize it, I would say it was probably other like UFO nerds. Yeah, which makes sense because you could see all right, there's a big UFO flap happening here. There's a lot of cool cases. And I mean. The, it is a bit of a stereotype among UFO uh, among ufologists that they don't uh, work together. And what I mean by that is everyone wants to be the one. They want to be the one who gets to shake the gray's hand. They want to be one that cracks the story and gets to prove to everyone who ever laughed at them in high school that yes, I was right. And given the way these some of these guys stuttered and the you know the pasty skin, I did get the image of like me showing up <laughs> yeah. at someone's door, being like. Ah, yeah, this is a contactee. I got to make sure none of these other weirdos talk to them. So I, you know, maybe I'll scare them a little, say, don't talk about UFOs. And then I have their story. And then it's my story to hold on to. The difference is you're incredibly charismatic. Yeah, but see, that's offset by the fact that I'm very large. And that uh, in the 1960s, I would have been even bigger. Yeah, that's true. You're 6'4", right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, you know, giant, giant size. I'm like... I'm like diet giant. No, I mean, six foot four is very tall. One and two, you're also large in general, just naturally. The what the yeah. like one thing that prevents <laughs> you from being truly scary is the fact that your shoulders are slightly narrow for your build. And it just kind of it makes your silhouette. You're less very lanky. Like, yeah, it, it makes your silhouette less like a Mack truck is coming to kill me and more like here's my friend Nick. He's a shaved Sasquatch and he gives really nice hugs. Okay, well, I didn't know I was self-conscious about my narrow shoulders, but now they're not they're not narrow. You just have long gorilla arms. They're they're not necessarily narrow. They're just not 
as broad as most people who are six foot four would naturally be. They're not too narrow for your frame. If I said that, I didn't mean it. It's they're that also they're just slight. feeling real attacked right it, now. It also I'm could sorry. be. It also. I'm sorry. It also could be the trauma from yeah. from the damage to your shoulder. So yeah, it's true. That's uh, possible. Yeah. Um, uh, it did. My, my bones are a little malformed. True. Um, true. But uh, sorry. It, as for the as for the men in black, I have a couple of different ideas. Um, maybe they're tulpas. Maybe like maybe they're just random energy all uh, fused together and uh, walking around. They they do they do remind me of the black eyed children. They do remind me as like more inept ver- adult versions of the black eyed children. Um, the well, other, I mean, the black eyed children are supposed in some people are supposed to be the children of the men in black. Yeah. So this is really, I guess. Yeah. These are the ones that failed men in black school. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> and um, my other explanation is people in the 60s didn't know what an autistic person was. Uh, <laughs> I like like seriously, uh, there's there's a there's a story of a guy in a diner who somehow, despite not knowing how to use utensils, could very clearly drive a car and um, apparently couldn't read. And everyone in the and everyone in the diner was just like his ears were weird. And I think he was an alien. And uh, what they're describing to me is like that was an autistic man. You were speaking to an autistic man. I assure you. He will not harm you. Uh, my third explanation, which I think is equally funny, is um, I think some of the ultra terrestrials, some of the ascended people, the, the secret masters, I think sometimes they're tourists. And I think they sometimes come here uh, kind of like how some of us want to go to the Japanese island that is filled with wild rabbits that will walk up to you and ask to be petted. Um, I think sometimes ultra terrestrials come you here. You, you want to go to that? I do. <laughs> rabbits are good. I, I mean, I like rabbits. Uh, I think sometimes they they come down here and they're just like, look at them. They're they're so cute, and they they they're just like, because that whole that whole thing where John Keel was like, like the Fae, they take our magazines, and like, I that seems like souvenir shopping to me. That they're like, look at this, look at this. They buy things out of this. They still have money. So I had a thought. Just, just just now. Okay. Is is it feasible to think that maybe like these men in black, the ones that were so like especially those ones that like couldn't use utensils and things like that. What 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 what's the possibility in your thought or in your mind that maybe those were manifestations of these non-people? I I think that that is exactly what Keel would want us to believe. Um I think in Keel's mind, it's part of a control mechanism uh, meant to keep us questioning and to keep us divided and to keep us, uh, I guess, out of the real no. Because if I'm chasing UFOs and Jay is chasing Bigfoot and Rory is chasing ethical politics, <laughs> we're all going to be, you know, we're uh, none of us are going to actually look past it and see that, oh, these are all really the same thing. And I think that's the point is the men in black are supposed to add those levels of paranoia and fear and feeling like, well, I maybe I shouldn't talk about this or maybe this maybe there are other forces that want to keep this quiet. And all that does is complicate the narrative more. It makes it more confusing. It makes it more scary. And I think John Keel would believe it makes it harder to get at the actual truth behind the masquerade. Right. Okay, so I have one more question I want to go into today. 
Uh, and then I have a, a quote from John Keel I want to uh, I want to give to you guys. But the last question would be, why do you think Keel centered the book around the Mothman? It's called the Mothman Prophecies when it ended up having a relatively small part of the narrative. One, I think Mothman is uh, catchy. I mean, it's true. I mean, the year of the Garuda, it's better than the year of the Garuda. Right. Mothman has staying power. Well, and Mothman uh, was more well known. Actually, he wasn't until the book came out. The case was largely getting forgotten. But it was published in uh, those local newspapers, the name Mothman. True. So even if uh, nothing else, he's going to attract the people in West Virginia who have read that. Right. And if anything, that's going to spread the word. Word of mouth is the best sales technique. Could make an argument that out of basically everything that happens in this book, Mothman is the part that's easiest to explain because Mothman in many ways is just straight up like there was this cryptid that was around for a while. People in West Virginia, particularly around Point Pleasant, went a little crazy for him. And then the bridge collapsed and killed 46 people. And we have some reason to believe that Mothman may have been involved in that. So... Whereas just like what 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 else would you entitle entitle the book? It's like the magical adventures of Woody Derenberger and his best friend Indrid Cold. No, we're gonna read that later. I I and I do think a part I do think a part of this like the reason why Mothman was chosen as the uh like the the center point or the name of the book whatever was not just saleability but because that's the most relatable part. Yeah. You know, it's you're going to read that first part about Mothman and you're going to be like, okay, I've heard other stories like this. Right. Or I've heard other things like this. So it's kind of a gateway to John, the rest of John Keel's mentality, because I think the purpose of the book was not to say Mothman is real. Mothman is this. It's to say this is this event that happened via Mothman. And this is what I think is the causation of what happened to me because of it. Yeah. Mothman is also an is also a good point to start the the thread of interconnectivity across human cultures because he returns to that over and over again of like like Mothman we have seen we have seen entities like Mothman across so many centuries and so many human cultures that it's not something we can just dismiss there is something occurring there whereas a lot of these other things are so esoteric and hard to grapple with that it's much it's much harder to explain that interconnectivity whereas mothman's a pretty solid epicenter for that stuff right no i agree yeah for sure okay i mean i i agree okay so i would like to end on age on when i think is my favorite john keel quote uh before we get into our clerical stuff here at the end of the episode housekeeping housekeeping uh, and that is this was from an interview he did with the Sci-Fi Channel uh, regarding the 2001 movie. I think it was 2001, The Mothman Prophecies. Uh, and he was asked, All right, are you ever afraid? Basically, go looking into this stuff. And this was his response. I've been afraid many times, but I all, I've also spent a lot of time in cemeteries at midnight. I've been inside the Great Pyramids alone. I've done a lot of interesting and dangerous things. I trekked through the Himalayas alone. I'm six foot two and the Tibetans are five foot two. So it was not a good idea to go very far. But I stepped over the border just to say I set foot in Tibet. But I'm not courageous or anything. 
I'm stupid. I take chances. A lot of people don't. They'll sit in the corner of their insurance office all their lives. And I think that I think that's a good uh, summary of who John Keel was. He was a bit of I mean, I don't think he was stupid. What I think is he was somebody who got out there, got in the mess of it. And for better or worse, he did his best to make sense of it. When ultimately, if you really look at the, the wealth of of paranormal activity and the weird interrelations between them. Making sense of it is a lifelong endeavor. It's not something you can expect to really do easily. Oh, yeah. No, for sure. Here's a thought I had while I was while I was reading this, and it is written down in my notes is and it kind of relates to what I was saying much earlier about the the Zen Buddhist idea that in order to obtain the ultimate truth of reality, there are certain agonies, both physical and non-physical that you have to go through. Uh, there, there's a quote from one of my favorite video games where um, an extra dimensional entity, in fact, acts, asks the main character, what is the truth worth to you? And the, char- the main character replies, everything. And that's kind of that's what I saw in a lot of these contactees and John Keel and a lot of these other people in throughout the Mothman prophecies that were getting involved in it. And I thought I thought of it when John Keel's friend encountered something that scared him so bad that he gave it up for life of like that was uh that was the guy you were talking about right not uh, gary, gary barker? barker yeah it was yeah, yeah. it was yeah. gary barker yeah. of the yeah the the idea of like what is the truth worth to you and it's like this is a this in john keel's view in the mothman prophecies this is a truth that is so big and has to be worth so much that you need to give up everything else including your sanity and all other things that you hold dear to even approach it well, I mean, and you'd make the argument, given the fact that later in life he stopped investigating, John Keel gave up. He got to a point where it was too much for even for him. Okay, so I, I do, don't, I know we've gone on for a little while here. I would like to uh, wrap things up for our listeners at home. Look forward to an exciting episode two as we take on the demon of Brownsville Road and uh, by te- Bob Cranmer and the terrible narrator that they assigned to the audiobook. <laughs> oh my God! Yeah. Well, and this time, just uh, so everybody listening uh, knows, uh, this uh, this episode and this book was chosen by Nick. Uh, the next episode and the next book was chosen by Jay, and Jay will be kind of running the the show that on the next episode. Oh, thank God. I can't take the pressure anymore. <laughs> um, it's been one night, dude. <laughs> and uh, so I, ultimately, I, I, I hope that everybody listening enjoyed our conversation. And if you did, you can uh, find us on all sorts of different social medias. Uh, for me, I'm mostly on Twitter. I uh, My Twitter handle is MixRoryWicks. That's M-X-R-O-R-Y. Wix, W-I-X. Uh, Nick is Bearish Terror. And uh, Jay is Midwest Undead, right? Mid At Miss Midwest Undead. Yeah, on Twitter. I am barely on Twitter, but I don't trust you people with my Tumblr yet. I am bad at Twitter, but tweet at me. I like talking to people. Yeah, it's fun. Also, we have an email uh, which you should send any sort of book suggestions or if you have any corrections you'd like to scream at us, feel free to fill up our email. Absolutely. Uh, we are uh, Noctivigant Pod or Noctivigant podcast at gmail.com sorry noctivagant podcast at gmail.com and for those who don't know how to spell noctivagant look it up yep yep <laughs> yep uh, noct if a gaunt 
Also, if you, you don't can know just how to spell Noctivagant, please refer to the title of the show. There you go. That's what I was just about yeah, to we say. We can't guarantee <laughs> we didn't misspell it in the title. Also true. But you know what? That's how you're going to have to spell it if you want to email us. So, Okay. Well, I think that's going to be our show. Uh, so good night, ghosties. Good night, ghoulies. Good night, moth people. Until next time, this is Nick, Rory, and Jay signing off. What what are you doing? Who listens to the episode after the outro? Go home or go to the next episode. Freak. <laughs>